You're listening to a lonely gay boy and his co-host discuss horror movies, and not the good ones. A horror enthusiast podcast in which me, a lonely gay boy, and my co-host discuss horror movies, and not the good ones. Thanks for tuning in, new friend. Welcome back to the show, dear listener. Well, sadly, uh, this episode will break our regular format uh, because we're not covering a bad movie. Oh, yes, we are. It's my week to pick a flick, so it's most assuredly bad. I don't regret meeting you on the dark web and inviting you to be my co-host for the series, but I'm starting to have reservations. Come now. Don't be like that. You made me sit through creeping terror. Now I'm making you tear apart a movie you love that a lot of horror fans do consider to be bad. Yeah, I guess so. This week we'll be discussing Friday the 13th, Part 5, A New Beginning. Are you saying we should get started right now? Or every fucking time. That sound means, since this is the first sequel we're covering, we should briefly go over the first four Friday the 13th movies. Uh, so, so, we'll be, so we'll be in proper context. I should have seen that one coming. That, that one is on me. Damn straight. So while a lot of movies start as works of passion... Friday the 13th was a cash grab to make good on the burgeoning slasher craze. The first film follows a group of camp counselors who have arrived early in the summer to get Camp Crystal Lake up and ready for campers after it's been closed for several years following the drowning of a boy named Jason Voorhees. Only some unseen killer is stalking them and, well, you know, killing them including Kevin Bacon. Turns out, it's Jason's mom, who is avenging his death, but but she gets beheaded for her troubles. And the Mother of the Year Award, 1980, goes to Pamela Voorhees. Well-earned, Pam. In part two, Jason's now an adult with a mullet, and he's wearing a sack mask, and, and he offs the final girl from the first movie. Well, then a bunch of counselors attend a training program on Crystal Lake. Jason basically kills just about everyone except the final girl, Jenny, who beats him using her child psychology degree. Funny, Jason's not my first choice for a slasher killer. I'd like to get on a couch. In part three... A city girl and her friends decide to enjoy the weekend at her family lake house, which is watched over by a local dude she's in some semi-relationship with. Well, Jason, he shows up and kills most of them and some bikers, and, and he steals a hockey mask from one of them, giving him his iconic look. It's all in 3D, so people keep awkwardly throwing things at the camera. That brings us to part four, the final chapter. And note that parts two, three, and four take place over one long, continuous week. So the Friday the 13th moniker is mostly pointless, since two-thirds of this trilogy don't occur on a Friday the 13th. In the final chapter, the Jarvis family go to their lake house for a holiday, while a group of sexy teens head out to the cabin next door. Well, Corey Feldman plays Tommy Jarvis, a tween who's into making masks, and is based on horror maestro Tom Savini, uh, who created Jason's look and, and did the effects in this movie, too. Well, Jason offs all the teens next door, including Crispin Glover, 
and, and Tommy's mom and, and maybe his dog uh, before Tommy and his sister kill Jason once and for all. Well, Tommy goes all crazy hacking away at him, and it, it's unsettling. They went all out in killing Jason because this was definitely going to be the final chapter in the franchise. Only it turned out to be an incredible film. It's often lauded as the best in the series and one of the best 80s slashers overall. It made 33 million bucks at the box office off a two and a half million budget. So it's very little surprise that just 11 months after the final chapter premiered in 1984, that part five, A New Beginning, was unleashed on the public. As we'll get into, uh, this was meant to be a reboot uh, that would give the series new life, but audiences weren't pleased with the new direction. So part six ends up basically ignoring this one and, and going back to the Jason well. I'll say this about part six. It's also considered by many fans to be their favorite, so part five certainly isn't helped any by being sandwiched in between two highlights of the series. Every Friday the 13th is great and special in its own way. Well, except Jason Goes to Hell, which is an okay Evil Dead fan film, but a very bad Friday the 13th movie. You're telling me you also like Jason in space. Jason X is greatly misunderstood. Well, also, I can, I can fan theory it to fit into the canonical timeline by imagining it's Jason being tormented in hell. Watching that movie made me feel the same way. But let's not get sidetracked, because we're not talking Deadite Jason or Space Jason, we're talking Sleazy Foe Jason. Well, it's not that sleazy. Director Danny Steinman wrote and directed the hardcore porno high-rise in the 70s. Paramount hired him to make a sequel to Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, but that project fell through, so they offered him a new beginning. You can see the porno exploitation angle throughout this film. Well, it gives it a unique tone. Well, that sound means enough preamble. It's time to roll up our sleeves and get dissecting. We opened on a rainy, moody woods at night with a Georgie from It-like boy in a yellow slicker. And, uh, oh snap, it's Corey Feldman. And he's back playing Tommy Jarvis. He approaches an Ed Woods-style grave someone spent all of ten bucks putting together. Well, he hears two men approaching. Poor Corey Feldman is getting drenched. How can he even see through those glasses? Well, the two grave diggers, they dig up Jason's grave uh, in the mud, and we see dead Jason in the grave, and he's covered in maggots. Only, uh, uh-oh, he was buried with a machete, uh, so he machetes the, the two men and rises from the grave. Looking just like he did in the Far Superior Part 4. Well, he, he spots uh, Tommy, who is too petrified to even move. And Jason swings the machete. Uh, but a uh, womp womp, it was just a dream. And we cut to older Tommy Jarvis, uh, who's still supposed to be a teen, but he's played by like a 29-year-old who doesn't, doesn't look like Corey Feldman at all. And he wakes up in the back of a medical transport van. He looks out through the cage at the officer driving and Nurse Billy who is flipping through a nudie mag. Oh, that's right. We are just over five minutes into this film, and it's already sleazy. Well, also, Tommy's POV shot at the cop and nurse uh, while they're driving is seven seconds long. Uh, why is it so long? Well, I guess to make sure we, we get to really see that nudie mag. We pull back to see he's being transported by the 
Unger Institute of Mental Health. Fade to opening credits. The famous hockey mask slams into the calendar-like title. Only this new hockey mask has blue chevrons. I do appreciate the simplicity of the credits. Plain white text over black, while Harry Manfredini's wonderful score plays. Oh yeah, the, the music in this series is just fantastic. You know you're watching a Friday the 13th flick anytime you hear that score. So the transport van reaches the Pinehurst Youth Development Center, uh, which is private property, uh, because... None of these movies can take place in the same location, since they always shoot at wherever's cheapest to film. There's this goat in a pen that they drive by. Is, is it a support animal? Does this goat ever come up again? Well, I think the goat was just on set that day. So they drive past some of the residents, and uh, Vic, who we later learn has anger management issues, Understatement. is driving a huge-ass tractor. Well, Tommy's nearly catatonic, uh, so Nurse Billy is kind of a dick. Uh, then he hits on Pam, who is the assistant director. Well, she gets Tommy to come inside and meet Dr. Matt. He wears blue jeans and rolled-up sleeves, so we know that this doctor is a hip, and he gets kids. And by kids, you mean... Adult actors in their mid to late 20s playing some sort of nebulous 16 to uh, 18 or so. Yeah. Well, we learned Pinehurst is meant to prepare kids to re-enter society. Well, there's no guards and it's all on the honor system. Tommy's pretty nervous, uh, but he does start talking just a little bit to Dr. Matt. Tommy goes upstairs to unpack and Dr. Matt tells Pam... Uh, he's been institutionalized since he was 12, after having a mental break from killing Jason. This establishes that Jason isn't just some campfire myth anymore. Doctors and professionals know that he was a psychopathic killer. Oh, sure. And apparently Tommy's been heavily medicated uh, and overtreated, so now they're trying to transition him into society. So upstairs, Tommy has removed his glasses, uh, because apparently the older you get, your eyes suddenly get all better on their own. Well, then he looks over a framed photo of his mom, sister, and their dog. It, in the last movie, the mom definitely died. And the dog is debatable, but the sister lived. Uh, but we'll never hear about her again. His very close sister, who would die protecting him, uh, well, she's just AWOL now. They won't even mention her again in the Far Superior, Part 6, Jason Lives. Although I suppose that title is a spoiler. Tommy's got a switchblade buck knife he stashes under his mattress. Well, I guess they hand those out at the Unger Institute. He opens up a closet and sees a massive spider, only to find it's a rubber spider. This prank is thanks to a young black kid named Reggie. Tommy doesn't reply. He just kind of turns around to his bag. Uh, then he pops back around with a handmade monster mask to scare Reggie. Since making masks was such a huge part of Tommy's personality in the last film, I suppose they had to, they had to mention it once or twice in this movie and drop it just as quickly as he removed his glasses. Oh, sure. He, he pulls out a couple other masks from his duffel bag, and, and that impresses Reggie. Tommy thinks Reggie is another resident, but Reggie says he's just visiting because his grandfather is the cook, and, you know, he's not, he's not a nut like all the other kids. And, um, for the record, Reggie actually is played by a child actor. He, he was about 14 or so when he, when he shot this. Enough character development. We've got to get more sleaze. So police sirens blare and everyone but Tommy runs outside to check as the sheriff and a deputy bring back residents Tina and Eddie who are found screwing on the neighbor's property. The sheriff tells Dr. Matt he understands Pinehurst is trying to help society, but the neighbors aren't happy about it. 
I just have to note uh, that Eddie um, is this rugged, dark-haired, sunglasses-wearing stud, wearing tight jeans and a blue flannel shirt that only the bottom button is done. So he's basically shirtless, as, you know, as sleazy and dirty as this one gets. At least it shows off this actor's body for no reason. You know, just like it does some of the women. Equal opportunity nipples. That's when Ethel and her son Junior motorcycle on over, and these two characters are so fucking gross and dirty. Ethel wants the loony bin closed down. She threatens the next time one of them comes on her farm, she'll blow out their brains. Well, the sheriff tries to calm her down, and she goes all Karen on them and threatens there's a bomb on her. If the sheriff touches her, she'll blow them all up. And and the sheriff is just like, okay, lady. Then she hops on Junior's motorcycle and rides away. You said it, but we cannot stress enough. These two characters are so ridiculous and over the top and grungy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I love this movie, but even I could do with no Ethel and Junior in it. You know, give the... Give that screen time to some of the other characters so we care about them, maybe? Well, I don't know. So Pam shoes everyone back inside while Dr. Matt and the sheriff talk privately. Well, the sheriff asks about Tommy and wishes him good luck. Well, we cut to later, I guess, and, and Vic is chopping wood like a maniac. Well, he's not trying to make small more manageable pieces of firewood or nothing. He's just literally hacking away at it. So Joey comes outside, and, and Joey is a fat, permed dude eating a chocolate bar, and, and he's got it all smeared over his hands and face. I think we should go over the residence now that everyone's sort of been introduced by being seen around Pinehurst, even though they haven't all necessarily been given proper character intros yet. Uh, besides Tommy, there's Vic who has anger issues. Eddie and Tina are apparently nymphomaniacs, but they're on the honor code, so they keep sneaking away to fuck. Jake has a stutter. Robin is a nice normal girl. Violet is a new wave girl who listens to her Walkman constantly and looks like the lead singer from Berlin. Then there's Joey, who is played as sweet but annoying. It's a lot of characters to keep track of, but pretty soon you won't have to worry about two of them. Ooh, you should you should write cliff notes. So so Joey tries to help Robin and Violet hanging up laundry to dry, uh, but he gets chocolate all over a white sheet. So the girls kind of yell at him, shoo him away. Well, he leaves to go help someone else. Uh, but unfortunately, that someone is Vic, who's pulverizing a log with an axe. Vic tells him to get lost, but Joey persists. Joey, you know, works in the exposition that he was an orphan and keeps yammering on at Vic, who warns him off a few times. So, so Joey sets a chocolate bar down and Vic chops it in half. And Joey starts to leave after admonishing Vic. Well, so, so Vic turns and chops Joey up in front of the girls. You'd have to assume this is the first murder on the premises. Otherwise, I'd like to think Dr. Matt would have revoked the honor system code by now. Well, well okay, you, you kids are on your own now. But I'm gonna trust you won't hack each other up. Cut to the ambulance showing up, and, and Vic is in the sheriff's car. The sheriff asks Dr. Matt about Joey's family, and 30 seconds after learning he was an orphan, Dr. Matt reiterates there is no family. The mother died in childbirth, and the father was unknown. Telling us about Joey's backstory is even less subtle than all the times they throw shit at you in Friday the 13th Part 3D. 
Well, that's when bubblegum-popping paramedic Duke unveils the bloody corpse in front of everyone and calls them pussies for flinching, including his paramedic partner, Roy. Roy gives Duke the evil eye and straddles up to him in a shot from behind of his legs. You know, kind of reminiscent of Jason approaching a victim. We, we fade out as Roy looks over Joey's corpse with a look that can only be described as, well, I don't know, kind of morose. And just when you think there are too many characters in this movie, we're introduced to two more. We cut to that night and find two greasers. Yes, greasers in 1985. Uh, who are on the side of the road having car problems. Uh, one of them complains that the cunts won't wait for them all night. They joke around about being spooked by the murder earlier that day, and, and one of them says all the loonies should be killed. So yeah, you know, they're, they're really making us want these two greaseballs dead. One of them leaves to take a crap in the woods. Not, not a piss. But crap, mind you. Oh, he gets scared when he hears something, but it, it's only a rabbit. Cut back to his argumentative friend at the car, and a stranger approaches with a road flare. The stranger is obscured by the bright light, sort of like how Pamela was when she kills Steve Christie in the original film. Anyway, the killer fucking shoves the road flare in the greaser's mouth. And I'm just thankful somebody shut him up. The other greaser comes out of the woods, uh, putting his pants back on, sort of, sort of mumbling and singing to himself. He tries the car, and it finally starts, uh, just as the killer grabs him from behind and, and slits his throat with a machete. What was even the point of the scene? We're introduced to two unlikable characters with no connection to the main storyline, who are promptly murdered. So what? Well, because we're one-third through the movie, and, and it needed some non-dream Jason kills. Well, these movies need a high body count, damn it. A comedy needs laughs. A Friday the 13th movie needs kills. Tommy wakes up the next morning, we're all sweaty, uh, reliving through audio only how he went all berserk and killed Jason back when he was Corey Feldman and needed glasses. Well, he starts freaking out, so he grabs his pill bottle and, and swallows one as he momentarily sees Jason in the mirror behind him with a bloody axe. But it's just a crazy hallucination. Yeah... The scene's fine and all, but gets bonus points for having Tommy, well, just in his boxer shorts. So it's breakfast time, and, and Robin and Violet are setting plates in the dining room. Reggie asks his Gramps if he can go see his brother since he's in town. Well, Gramps, who is the Pinehurst cook, gives Reggie a noncommittal, well, we'll see, which upsets Reggie. Gramps is awesome and just sort of laughs it off and, and gives Reggie a hug and a kiss on the forehead. Reggie tells Gramps not to kiss him when people are around, and, and Gramps says, Reggie, go tell everyone breakfast is ready. So Reggie walks to the doorway and shouts that food's ready. And what a great, what a great wholesome moment between these characters. Indeed, which is so strange because most of the characters in this film are... Unlikable, sleazy, you can't wait to die. But then, basically, Reggie's family is all awesome. So Pam, uh, Tina, and Jake come in for breakfast, and Tina tells Violet that she set too many plates. And Violet's embarrassed that she did that out of habit since Vic and Joey aren't there anymore. And Jake gets all pissy about it, but... Dr. Matt comes in and calms them down. So Tommy comes down for breakfast, and Eddie follows him, scaring him with one of his masks. It incenses Tommy that someone had touched his mask, so he, he body slams Eddie and starts pummeling him 
Well, Dr. Matt pulls him off, and, and Tommy goes all quiet psycho. What are we supposed to be thinking about Tommy here? I think that this is a mystery movie. You know, they've set up that Jason is dead, and they're not showing us the killer's face. In this film, Jason isn't a killer, it's someone else, so I suppose it is a mystery. Are they trying to make us think it's Tommy because he's psycho? But shouldn't we be rooting for our protagonist? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Cut to Ethel chopping a chicken in her grungy kitchen while Junior eats slop. They're both still all dirty and, and rednecky, and, and Ethel calls him, You big dildo, just like most mothers call their sons. The animals, because uh, they live in a farm, are all worked up outside, so Ethel takes a shotgun to investigate. But it's just a, a dirty bum coming to the door to ask for some work. Well, he hasn't eaten in two days, so he'd like he'd like to have some work for some food. Well, she tells him to clean out the chicken shit in the coop. Then she'll give him a meal. I think Ethel and Junior are supposed to be the comic relief, but they're just so grimy and over the top in a way that doesn't fit the tone of the rest of the movie. It's not a fun camp. It's intentional humor, but it doesn't work. But then we cut to a short scene that makes me laugh, whether it's intentional or not. The sheriff is overseeing the police and paramedics looking over the double homicide of the greasers from the night before when the sheriff says to himself, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> you talking to me, Sheriff? Huh? I thought you was talking to me. No, Roy, it's okay. Go ahead. Get them out of here. It's such an awkward moment and, and actually very human and realistic. It's also only in there to remind us that Roy exists. No spoilers yet. But the movie is going out of its way to make sure you know that Roy is a character in this film. They even have a deputy tell the sheriff it looks like they have a maniac on the loose. Cut to a shot of Roy closing the paramedic door. Ominously. Well, then it's nighttime again. We, we literally skipped the entire day. Well, all right. So that's when we get reintroduced to Nurse Billy, who dropped Tommy off at the beginning of the movie. Well, now he's off duty, and he does donuts in the parking lot outside a diner. His lady friend Lana is a waitress who is closing up shop. Lana tells him to, to wait for her to close up and, and get ready, so she goes inside and strips in the mirror so we get a, a shot of her tits. Nurse Billy's listening to rockin' music with no lyrics in the car, getting all hyped up, so he snorts some cocaine. And I believe you said you disagreed that this movie isn't sleazy. Well, I, well, I said not that sleazy. So back, back to Lana in the diner bathroom, and she's changed and, and putting on lipstick. Well, she hears a sound. But it's only a cat leaping out at her. You know, because most diners have, like, feral cats <laughs> roaming around after closing time. Perhaps Ethel or Junior are the health inspectors, so anything goes. Well, back outside, Billy's getting impatient. No thanks to the coke, I'm sure. When he sticks his head out the window to yell at Lana to hurry up, it, it's pretty... Pretty convenient of him, so the killer can ram an axe into his skull. With the greasers, we basically saw a blurry jumpsuit and a hand. Now we're seeing dirty green overalls and an arm. Lana, who is shit at her job because the diner is still a mess and there's dirty dishes on the tables, well, she sets the cat out and leaves, locking up behind her. Well, she gets in Billy's car and... And she's pissed that he's not there. But 
but she's pretty happy when she sees the coke on the floor. She's less pleased when she sees the killer's boots and a bloody axe just outside. She, she hurries out of the car and, and the, around the other way, but then she gets axed in the stomach, and we fade out to the next morning. How many days does this one cover? Most Friday the 13th are over the course of 24 to 30 hours, and we're already up to day three? Well, it's so we can get more early morning shirtless Tommy scenes, so no complaints here. He's, he's just gazing out of his window uh, as Eddie and Tina goof around in the chicken pen. Well, then he sees fucking Jason staring up at him with an axe in hand, and, and Tommy clutches his eyes. Oh, then Jason's gone, and, and it's just them chickens. Dum-dum-dum. Cut to the sheriff's office, and the douchebag mayor is reaming him out while the sheriff smokes a cigar. Well, because it's the 1980s. The sheriff says he knows who it is. It's Jason Voorhees. Uh, but the, the mayor is outraged and shouts at him that Jason is dead, and his body was cremated. Well, the sheriff questions if the mayor was there when Jason was cremated. So maybe he wasn't. Well, the mayor counters by putting the cigar ash in the sheriff's hand and telling him to find a living suspect. And what an interesting scene this is. It's proving that this is a mystery film, right? Jason is dead. It's not Jason. Who done it? Or I suppose, who is doing it? Meanwhile... Tina is bringing in the laundry when Eddie sneaks up on her and they decide to go sneak off grounds and fuck. And I'm left wondering, why on earth did these two have to sneak away? They're on the honor system and they have their own rooms. You know, there's no guards and the residents come and go as they please. So why don't you just go to Eddie's room and fuck? Oh, I've, I've got this one. I'd have to say that part of the excitement is in the danger. Ooh, we might get caught. We're not supposed to be here. That makes you putting me into the uncomfortable, cold, hard dirt exciting and not sad. Well, just in case you're not sold on, on Tina and Eddie's characters, here's the uh, cracking dialogue between them. <laughs> you really scared me. Eddie, we can't. That'll kill us. Fuck him. Fuck you. Exactly. Fuck me. So they run giggling into the woods and find a clearing uh, that she spreads her bedsheet onto, uh, which makes her the worst laundry woman in the world because that's so sandy. Well, Eddie pulls out a joint uh, because fucking isn't enough, these two need to do drugs to draw the killer to them. And of course, someone's watching from just outside the clearing, breathing all heavy as their shirts come off, exposing her tits. But oh no, it's just the hobo working for Ethel. But his show is interrupted real quick when the killer shoves a knife into his gut. This character added nothing but to the body count. Well, you, you forget this is a mystery movie? So the hobo was a red herring for about five seconds. Well, then we, we cut immediately to Tina and Eddie, and they're giggling and rubbing each other, saying, you know, that was fun because the sex is over and he needs to clean up. Like, it's, it's literally been five seconds. They, they needed to cut to some other scene in between. Um, but at least while they're all handsy in post-coital bliss, Eddie's nipples are as exposed as hers are. And only Eddie goes off to clean up in the stream? I would imagine that she would want to as well. But no, no, she just lies on the blanket, completely nude, enjoying the afternoon and the birds. All blissed out. But then, oh, fuck no. The killer drives giant gardening shears into her in a sort of semi-off-screen kill. But, but we still see a lot of blood. Indeed, we do. 
Well, Eddie's well, washed up in the stream now and has sadly put on his tight black jeans. He returns through the thicket to find Tina's eyes have been gouged out. Well, he's shocked, although he looks more nonplussed about it all, then stands and, and backs into a tree. Well, that's when the killer throws a belt around the tree and Eddie's face and, and tightens the belt with a stick, which crushes Eddie's face in a bloody mess while he whimpers. I go back and forth on this kill scene. Perhaps it's not the greatest, but some kills are off screen, so it's, it's better than that. I just have to think that, one, the killer was planning on Eddie to back up against that particular tree in fright, and two, wouldn't the stick break before Eddie's face does? I, I know I'm being picky, and it is a fun little kill, but I still question it. Well, too bad Mythbusters never covered that one for you. We'll cut to Pinehurst, and Reggie's waiting in the truck to go visit his brother, even though Gramps warns him not to get into any trouble and to appreciate that Pam is bringing him. Pam tells Dr. Matt not to worry about Tina and Eddie, that they'll return as soon as they're hungry. And Pam and Dr. Matt might be canoodling. Well, they have a good rapport, and she's a little touchy. Not too much so, but, but I think there could be something between them. Dr. Matt spots Tommy sulking by a tree and suggests he go with Pam and Reggie to get some air and, uh, you know, humanity to help socialize him. He reluctantly agrees to go along, so Gramps and Dr. Matt see off our trio of Pam, Tommy, and Reggie on their way to go visit Reggie's brother. We get way too aggressive of a soundtrack while Pam drives the truck to a trailer park. Pam parks, and she and Reggie go see Demon, while Tommy decides to hang back at the truck. This is when we meet the best character in the movie, Reggie's older brother, Demon. He's so fucking cool and charming. He's living in this trailer park, wearing all leather, fly as fuck, and offering his little bro an enchilada. I, I cannot stress enough that Demon is charming. I want to hang out with him just like Reggie does. And Demon isn't alone in the trailer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Reggie's impressed with Demon's rings until he sees the pretty woman in the back. And then he's even more impressed. Nina's smoking a cigarette, and, and Reggie hits on her in a really endearing way. She laughs it off, uh, you know, treating him like, like a little brother. Reggie introduces them to Pam, claiming that Pam is his girlfriend. The four of them start joking and getting along great, while Tommy sulks outside and nearly has a panic attack by looking at the trailer park neon sign. And just while we're spending time with endearing, likable characters, Junior reappears in the film. He motorcycles up to Tommy and starts mocking him. He realizes Tommy's from Pinehurst and threatens him, so Tommy punches Junior and ends up drop-kicking him to the ground. Tommy basically beats the shit out of Junior, which makes me finally like Tommy, until Pam interrupts them. Well, then it, it's a little unclear, uh, but Tommy takes off. So Pam and Reggie get in the truck looking for him. But we stay with Demon, whose stomach bothers him from all the enchiladas. So he runs into the outhouse while Nina worries about him. Demon's in the port john when it starts shaking uncontrollably. Only it turns out to be Nina having a goof. Well, by the way, Nina is wearing this simple blue dress and is beautiful. Um, and black gloves. It is such a look. Great contrast to Demon and his leather studs and jewelry. Well, I, I just love these characters, and they should have been introduced earlier so we could spend more time with them. Agreed, 100%. So Nina teases Demon that a snake could crawl out of the crapper and bite his ass. And then, well, Demon, 
is shitting. The two of them sing Ooh Baby together. And this is such an earworm. Ooh baby, ooh baby. Ooh baby, yeah. Ooh baby, you baby, yeah. Ooh baby, yeah. Ooh baby. Hey baby. Hey baby. I legitimately sing that to myself sometimes while I'm, while I'm doing house chores. <laughs> okay, so then, abruptly, Nina stops singing, and we see that she's no longer outside. Well, then the outhouse starts shaking even worse, and Demon tries to leave, only to find the doors blocked by Nina's body on the ground. Her neck is all slashed up. The killer jabs a sharp pole through the outhouse and impales Demon in the leg, and then the chest, killing him. This one hurts. Lonely Smith here, and, um, yeah, okay, so, so here's the deal. Well, this episode is running kind of long, so there's no time for an ad break about it being brought to you by Hockey. And you already know to, to like and share this on whatever platform you're listening to. So, uh, yeah, back to the episode. So Pam and Reggie get back to Pinehurst, and they're greeted by Jake, Robin, and Violet, uh, who are all worried, telling them that Dr. Matt and Gramps are both AWOL. Dr. Matt said he was going out to look for Tina and Eddie, but there's no explanation or anyone else being gone. Pam calms everyone down. She puts Jake in charge and tells Reggie he needs to go to bed. Well, she's going back in the truck and she's gonna track everyone down. It's a solid plan, Pam. Only I have a feeling you're not going to find them in the state you're hoping for. Cut to Ethel's farm. She's making Junior's dinner while he's motorcycling around the farm and in circles like a madman, shouting about how they hurt him and, and his nose is still bloody and all and he's all snotty. But thankfully the killer beheads Junior and then gives Ethel an axe to the head through her kitchen window. Her face falls in her disgusting stew. At this point, I've realized most of these kill scenes have been in pairs. You had the two gravediggers at the beginning, the two greasers, Eddie and Tina were murdered together, Nurse Billy and Lana, now Ethel and uh, Junior. It sure is a great way to up the body count. Well, sure, two for the price of one. So Pam drives along the road, but has truck problems, and she has to hoof it. Meanwhile, Jake and Robin are watching a scary black-and-white movie, and, and she's eating popcorn. Well, it's actually a place in the sun from 1951, and, and kind of revolves around a drowning, so it's thematically tied well, into Jason's backstory. So that's kind of cool. So he makes his move on her, since they've been together at Pinehurst for nearly eight months, well, she likes him, but, but not like that, and just sort of laughs when he says he wants to make love with her. Well, he storms off, claiming he didn't mean it, and she turns back to the movie. Why the fuck are these characters even at Pinehurst? Jake expresses his feelings for Robin in a pretty healthy way while he struggles with his speech impediment. He doesn't touch her or try to invade her space, and when she laughs, he immediately retreats. I'd call that the opposite of toxic behavior. Basically, all we know about him is he has a stutter. Yeah, that's true, but, uh, you know, keep in mind 
that Pinehurst is meant to be a transitionary place for these teens. You know, they may have histories of, of abuse or mental health problems, but the system is trying to, you know, heal them and get them back into society. You know, so it, it makes sense that most of the residents are, you know, fairly well-behaved. That is a good point that I hadn't considered. I'll admit it is a welcome relief from most films portraying everyone in mental health facilities as raving lunatics. Well, upstairs, poor Jake starts crying as it starts thundering outside. He knocks on Violet's room and, and finds her rocking to music and reading a magazine. He says he needs to talk to her, you know, presumably to, to ask her to make love with him. But she says, you know, can it wait? So he just leaves, only to get a meat cleaver to the skull. It is a quick, effective, on-screen kill. Well done. Well, the rain's really coming down now as Robin's movie ends. You know, we get the weird reveal that Reggie was in the room the whole time, but, but sleeping on another couch. So Robin tries to wake him up so that he can go to bed all proper-like, but he refuses. So Robin relents and, and goes up to her room and, and takes off her clothes for some more tit shots. She talks to the mirror and, and chastises herself for not taking Jake up on his offer in a moment of comedic irony. So she, she climbs up into her bunk bed in her panties with her stuffed animals, and she rolls over right into Jake's corpse. You know, she's startled and starts to leave, but the killer grabs her arm from the bottom bunk and impales her with a machete. In a very poor reenactment of the post-coital Kevin Bacon kill from the original film. Back in her room, Violet's popping and locking to her music while it's thundering outside, so she doesn't notice the bloody hand of the killer easing his way into her room. She hears a noise. Oh, but there's no one there. The song she's listening to is all ironic because the lyrics are about not seeing someone behind you. And then the killer grabs Violet and machetes her in the gut. And I've got to stop you right there. Firstly, poor Violet. She's a great character who doesn't get nearly enough screen time. Secondly, the killer just offed Demon and Nina, Ethel and Junior, Jake, Robin, and Violet, and we've learned Dr. Matt and Gramps are missing. In all the last 13 minutes, that basically leaves us with Tommy, Pam, and Reggie, left in the film with 20 minutes left. The lightning storm wakes Reggie up on the couch downstairs, and he heads upstairs. He knocks on Tommy's door and steps inside to find Jake, Robin, and Violet's corpses on Tommy's bed. He backs up to find Pam walking upstairs, and she questions him about what's wrong. She, she tells him to relax and checks out Tommy's room, only to scream when she finds the bodies. She grabs Reggie's hand and races downstairs with him, only he trips in the kitchen and all of a sudden... Fucking Jason Voorhees himself bursts through the door. It's Jason like we know and love, only he's a little smaller and his mask isn't fucked up and the chevrons are lower and blue instead of high up in red. But it's raining behind him and he's holding a bloody machete, so it's on, bitches. We've been waiting an hour and ten minutes for this and it's finally happening, people. Pam and Reggie book it through the house and outside and into the woods in the wind and rain. It's, it's lightning and they're terrified and I actually like these two characters and the music's going on and, and this is what I want in a Friday the 13th movie. They come across the paramedic ambulance. The lights are going on but it's sort of crashed off the side of the road. And Pam opens the door and Duke, the, the bubblegum-chewing paramedic from earlier, well, he falls out and his throat slit. Then Jason pops out from the other side of the car and Pam and Reggie shriek in terror. 
They take off again but get separated while Jason slowly stalks after them. Pam and Reggie shout for each other and trip a couple times, and Pam runs smack into Dr. Matt's body. He's strapped to a tree with a spike through his forehead. Oh, it's, it's gonna get worse before it gets better. So Pam ends up back at Pinehurst, looking for Reggie, but Gramps' mutilated body is thrown through the window. She runs back outside as Jason stalks after her, and she falls in the mud and scrambles toward the barn. Well, Jason reaches her and is about to machete her to death when fucking Reggie breaks through the barn wall on that huge-ass tractor we saw Vic working on at the start of the movie. Chekhov's Tractor. <laughs> yeah, so so Pam rolls away while Jason's staring at the tractor, and Reggie straight up rolls into Jason, sending him flying and, and knocking him out. So Reggie helps Pam up, and they think they did it, because Jason's just lying there all still. Uh, but then we can see he's still breathing. So he snags Pam's foot, and she kicks him away, and they run into the barn. Well, Jason gets up, and we see he's bleeding from where the tractor hit him. You know, that means this is a very different Jason than the one we know and love. A little too different. Suspiciously different. Jason looks around the barn for his victims until he finds Pam. But she comes running at him with a fucking chainsaw. He deflects it with his machete, but this fight is on, and Pam slices his shoulder. She goes in for the kill, but the chainsaw runs out of gas. When Jason, he recovers, although he's weakened, uh, and she throws the chainsaw at him and runs just as Tommy arrives. Reggie shouts at him, and, and Jason turns around, and the two of them stare each other down. I had honestly forgotten that Tommy was in this movie. I guess now that he's no longer a, a suspect, he can go back to being a hero or something. Yeah, some, something like that. So Pam hides in the rafters with Reggie, and they urge Tommy to run. But he's petrified as Jason approaches him. Well, Jason slashes Tommy's chest and then goes in for the kill. Until Tommy pulls out that knife we saw him hiding earlier, and he jabs Jason's leg. And Tommy makes it to the ladder and climbs up into the loft as Jason starts up after him. And then we sort of switch to Jason's POV as he climbs up the loft and discovers Tommy lying unconscious, possibly dead from his chest wound. Jason finds Reggie, but Pam fights Jason as he herds her toward the open ledge of the loft, overlooking a spiked bed for hay. Just as Pam is about to fall to her doom, Reggie rushes Jason and knocks him off the ledge. Pam and Reggie slowly approach the ledge to look over when Jason pops back up and grabs Reggie's leg. They, they struggle until Tommy wakes up, grabs the machete, and cuts off Jason's hand. This sends Jason plummeting onto the bed of spikes and, and somehow knocks off his hockey mask. And big surprise here, it tears his Jason face mask off, revealing that it was a normal-looking brown-haired guy who was dressed up like Jason all along. And it's a little bit unclear, but it's, it's Roy. It's paramedic Roy who had, like, five lines in the first half of the movie. He, he's Jason. It's Roy. Oh, sure. But all will be explained soon. Here's a tip to filmmakers out there. Don't have an extreme close-up of a dead person's face in the rain. If it's just a shot of the actor trying to keep still, you can't hide him flinching and twitching involuntarily as rain drops pelt his eyelids. 
cut to the hospital with a nurse doing her nails and Pam's comforting Reggie in the waiting room when the sheriff shows up. You know how Psycho is one of the best films ever, only the ending is kind of rough because it's just some expert character explaining the plot to the survivors. Oh, sure. Well, this movie decides to copy that part of Psycho. <laughs> That's right, because the sheriff explains fake Jason was really Roy the paramedic, uh, and they've discovered that he was Joey's father. You know, the, the fat kid that Vic acts at the beginning of the movie? Well, Roy was a real loner, and he snapped when he saw Joey all hacked up. We also had a, a bunch of newspaper clippings about Jason. The whole climax and mystery could have been salvaged had they revealed Roy in the barn and he monologued about why he was doing this before dying. Cut the awkward exposition from the sheriff later. So Pam checks in on Tommy and sees that he's stable. Physically, at least. <laughs> yeah, because cause then he pulls a machete out of nowhere and stabs her to death, laughing like a maniac. Only it's just a dream. Well, it's later that night, and, and he's in the hospital, and it's raining, and he tries to relax, but then he has a vision of, of OG Jason standing over his bed and and Tommy sort of goes all evil-faced as the music swells. Tommy gets out of bed and finds the hockey mask in a dresser. You know, not like in, in evidence somewhere, but just in a victim's hospital room. The case against Troy isn't going to trial. So Pam is walking down the hall, and she pauses outside Tommy's room, and she hears a crash, and she runs in, only to find the windows broken. And, and behind her, Tommy is in the hockey mask, and he closes the door and stands right behind Pam with the knife ready to kill. And, uh, yeah, that, that does it. That was Friday the 13th, Part 5, A New Beginning. What a fun time had by all. Is it a perfect movie? No. Is it a good movie? No. The protagonist is basically a cardboard cutout, since he barely says 25 words the entire film. Most of the characters are despicable. The few that are likable don't have nearly enough screen time to truly feel invested in them. The mystery element is mishandled. Well, at least we see Roy earlier, you know, and his story sort of makes sense. When you go back and rewatch, you can also sort of figure out, you know, why he's killing people. To avenge his son. So he kills everyone except his son's murderer? Right. The problem is they're trying to redo the original movie's mystery aspect. In that case, it was a mother avenging Jason. Here, it's a father avenging his son. But they get it all wrong. With the original, we get a punchline without a setup. But this film delivers the setup without a punchline. Well, I guess. Also, Pam should have been Ginny from part two. She was a fantastic final girl who was going into child psychology, so it would make sense that she would work at Pinehurst. Oh, sure, that, that would have been cool, uh, but I really do like Pam here. And apparently she was set to return for part six, well, until they decided to go in a different direction. And that sound means I've listened to you bitch about a movie I really enjoy long enough. Well, we'll be back to one of your picks next week. What's on the agenda? Well, I figured it's time we dive into found footage and we watch Blumhouse's 2015 supernatural horror flick, The Gallows. Oh, that shouldn't be too bad. It'll be a nice palate cleanser after making me badmouth a Jason movie. 
Well, okay, dear listener, that that does it for us. Bye. Until next time. Thank you.